Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a new podcast from Mayo Clinic. Each week, we'll highlight one of our favorite talks from our world-class medical conferences. Today's talk, Truthful and Fearless, Talking Through Vaccine Hesitancy, presented by Nicole K. Callahan, Certified Nurse Practitioner, and Dr. Derek Wyrock. It was given at the Internal Medicine Review Conference in September 2015 in Rochester, Minnesota. Thank you for that warm welcome. We're very excited uh, to talk about something that we both feel passionately about today. We know that this can be a hot topic and a big topic of debate within the office. So our goal today is to give you some tools um, on approaching a parent and a patient on vaccine hesitancy because it seems like a very great issue where we can break it down into much more uh, logical steps. Unfortunately, we have no financial disclosures, so we don't have to worry about that today. And we're going to start off with a case study. Two-month-old, full-term, healthy infant arrives today for a well-child visit. Patient is found to be healthy, thriving, but upon wrapping up the visit, parents express concern over vaccination, saying, well, we'd just like to do a little more research. And this is a classic manifestation of the undercurrent in society that we'll see, which is at most concern or even opposition to vaccination. And so if we look at this further, we think about this picture we found online. If you mixed mercury, aluminum phosphate, ammonium sulfate, formaldehyde, and viruses and injected it into your child, you'd be arrested and sent to jail. Then why is it legal for a doctor to do it? Why would you let them? Educate yourself, rethink vaccines. Well, why stop there? Let's take it one step further. If you burst into the bedroom of a child, you didn't know wielding an ax, forcibly took the child out of the bed, took them outside, you'd be arrested and sent to jail for assault and kidnapping. Why is it legal for a firefighter to do it? Why would you let them? Educate yourself, rethink firefighters. <laughs> but you know, why even stop there? If you took copper wiring, connected it to a power grid, ran it through your house, into the room of your child, you'd be arrested and sent to jail. Why can electricians do it? Rethink electricity. So we think about for our discussion today, our objectives would be, let's review the science behind not only immunization, but what works and what doesn't work in terms of counseling parents and our patients regarding vaccine hesitancy. Let's think about broadening our knowledge of vaccine safety so we can appropriately counsel them. And then let's also review and practice the case approach. So when we both approached this talk, we talked about our own past experiences and we learned that we have to take a step back and look at the parental perspective. These individuals want what's best for their children and they're in a society where they have to balance the evidence, recommendations and protection inclination towards their child against concern and lots of misinformation. I think our goal is to really make sure that balanced on this fulcrum, concern doesn't grow and lead them to be uh, overly inclined to defer vaccines when in our best interest and the patient's best interest, it would be to have a safe vaccine protected society. So if we look back at what got us to this point here talking about a debate surrounding vaccine efficacy, we think about before there was lots of disease looking at this circle diagram and with that came vaccination that lowered the disease burden and that allowed for, unfortunately, disease awareness to be decreased. That led to questioning vaccines and our resurgence in disease prevalence. We saw that in the past year, there was notable cases of Disneyland. Well, before the measles vaccine, there were 500,000 cases annually in the United States. It was eradicated in the year 2000. But now we're seeing in 2008, 127 cases. Now five outbreaks this year. Why is this disease coming back? And 
Is it because with vaccine efficacy, we have a paradoxical questioning of vaccines? So consequences of refusal. We all know as herd immunity decreases, our risk of acquiring a vaccine-preventable disease increases. Um, as Dr. Awayrock mentioned, we are seeing a community outbreaks. Specifically, we see a pertussis outbreak almost annually, the measles outbreak in California, um, centralized around Disneyland, and homophilus influenza type B. So what influences parental hesitancy? Well, we reviewed the literature on this, and what is overwhelming about this is that it's your recommendation. Recommendations by the clinician have the biggest impact on parental hesitancy. What doesn't seem to work is community-wide education, clinic-based education, or my personal favorite, the clinician-patient research vomiting that tends to happen when we encounter any hesitancy. Um, plain and simple, your recommendations work, and knowledge transfer, unfortunately, doesn't work that well. So what else seems to work? Great article, Opal et al., 2013, specifically oversampled vaccine-hesitant parents. They uh, looked at uh, 111 visits in which the clinician used a presumptive statement, well, we have to do some shots at the end of a visit, versus a participatory statement, well, what do you want to do about shots? What they found is if a participatory statement was used, that parents were much more likely to defer or have concerns regarding the vaccine schedule. What was interesting about this, uh, what was interesting about this study is if the clinician um, still reinforced, well, I think we should do shots today, that more than half of those parents eventually, um, eventually succeeded to vaccine schedule. So they, even though they were hesitant to begin with, if the clinician went on to reinforce, no, this is a good idea, the parent actually went along with the schedule. So things to keep in mind. Um, your recommendation matters. That's probably the most important thing that you can get out of this talk today. Second, using a presumptive statement versus a participatory statement at the end of your visit, well, uh, the nurse will be in to give your shots, will uh, give you a step ahead in uh, combating vaccine or in combating parental hesitancy to begin with. Now, we know this doesn't work all the time, and this is where case comes in. Case is a mnemonic for structuring your conversation um, about with vaccine hesitant parents. Um, it was developed by Allison Singer, who is a founder and CEO of the Autism Science Foundation. The American Academy of Pediatrics has subsequently adopted this model, as well as the Minnesota chapter of the AAP. While there are no validated studies um, regarding the case approach, there are a few quick standardized alternatives. Uh, most importantly, what I love about CASE and what um, others have begun to recognize is that it preserves the relationship. This is not an us versus them um, scenario. We need to open dialogue regarding vaccine hesitancy to have an honest and open conversation. So utilizing CASE, C stands for corroborate, A about me, S for science, and E for explain and advise. So to begin with, um, most importantly, you need to uh, pinpoint what is their main concern. And after you've identified their main concern, it's important to corroborate on that issue. You acknowledge the parent's concern and find some point on which you both can agree on. You set the tone for a respectful and successful talk. Openings would include, we, we both want what's best for your child. I understand your concerns. Um, next is about me. This is where you describe the steps that you've taken to uh, build your knowledge base. I've looked at the research on this. Uh, there have been several studies regarding this. Or my personal favorite, I went to a conference just last week which addressed this very thing. 
Science. Share the scientific facts in a straightforward manner uh, to counter the parents' immediate concerns. Now, I do want to caution you on this. This is not a knowledge transfer. This is not research vomiting, imparting all of the studies that we are going to review here back onto the patient, because we know that doesn't work. What we do want you to focus on is a few key facts. Finally, explain and advise. Explain why vaccination is best for the patient. Um, examples of this would be, and that's why I would recommend vaccination today. I have vaccinated my own children uh, with the recommended schedule. We're going to encounter three scenarios today that uh, address specific uh, concerns that often come up in uh, vaccine-hesitant parents. So you're concluding the visit. You're, using, uh, you're recommending vaccines using a presumptive statement. Your infant looks completely healthy. The nurse will be in for your vaccinations. Well, I think we want to hold off on shots. She's so young, and I don't want to overwhelm her immune system. Paul Offit authored an excellent AAP special article entitled Addressing Parents' Concerns. Do multiple vaccines overwhelm or weaken the infant's immune system? And now we know that it's not clinically relevant, but a simple number can be a very effective tool in being able to counsel parents. And through some interesting math, they were able to find taking into account epidopes, immunoglobulin binding sites, and concentration in the blood that at any one time an infant or child could handle 10,000 vaccines at once. And that's just at baseline, and not even accounting for the tremendous productive capacity of the immune system, 10,000. So then we also think about, well, if they can handle the vaccines, what about any immune suppression that might happen? Well, it's been well studied, and we know that there is not any negative effects from any transient immunosuppression that can follow vaccination. There was a German study that looked at 500 children after receiving DPT, polio, and HIV, and looking at healthy versus sick visit children, or just looking at what sequelae of infections they had, they found that there was no correlation between vaccine-preventable or vaccine-unrelated infections following vaccination. Finally, regarding immune system overload, there's the concern about, well, do we have antigens in all these vaccines? Are there too many antigens? Do we have what's called antigen overload, a common topic on the internet? Well, we may have more vaccines now, but as we'll see, we have less antigens. Looking at this chart, which we'll walk through together, over the past 100 years, we look at antigens present in vaccines, and we look at smallpox, the first vaccine that had about 200 antigens just on its own. Then this all peaked in 1980 when we had a little over 3,000 vaccines with the whole cellular pertussis vaccine. However, now, thanks to our advancements in vaccine technology with acellular pertussis, we have just 123, 126 antigens, less than the smallpox vaccine on its own in the entire schedule. And at that, we always remind ourselves we no longer give smallpox because vaccination eradicated the disease. So when we think about immune system overload, we know now that vaccines don't weaken or use up our immunity. They train the immune system and they prevent secondary infection and they have no increase in any non-vaccine associated infections. We know that, however, well, if you can give them all at once, if they can handle 10,000, Let's just get this done with, give the whole schedule. Well, unfortunately, it's very difficult to combine vaccines, particularly from the buffering agents that are used within them. And a real problem could be vaccine invisibility. We still do want the immune system to be able to fully address each vaccine and confer immunity, even if it has no problems handling them. So thinking about immune system overload, we have this tremendous reserve and capacity. We think about every mother's kiss will elicit more of an immune response in an infant than the entire vaccine schedule. I put that one myself in my back pocket as Nicole taught me, because that can really convey the level here. 
We also think nowadays there's more vaccines, less antigens though, thanks to our technology. And finally, vaccines prevent primary and secondary infection. So let's get back to case. We'll have you review this once again. We're going to review this initial um, just to give you an idea of what case would feel like in your office. So again, using a presumptive statement, your infant looks completely healthy. The nurse will be in for your vaccinations. I think we want to hold off on shots. She's so young. I don't want to overwhelm her immune system. So we begin with C. I understand your concern. And if I thought your infant's immune system was not strong enough to support vaccinations, I wouldn't want him to get them either. A, I've done the research on this. S, and your infant's immune system is more than capable of handling all recommended vaccines. A single mother's kiss will expose your infant to more immune triggering antigens than the entire vaccine schedule. Starting vaccines on schedule will help to train your infant's immune system and prevent future infection. It's that easy. Scenario number two, your child has a common cold and will improve with time. I see she is also due for several vaccinations that are important to complete today. Oh, we'll have to come back for those. I don't want to give her shots when she's sick and then make her more sick. So looking at this scenario, we can think to ourselves, how would we address this? But as with our first scenario of immune system overload, let's take a second, do a quick science refresher, and then talk about incorporating case into this issue, sick visit shots. So our common misconceptions in this area are that the child is more likely to have side effects when vaccinated while acutely sick, that the vaccine is less likely to be effective, and also parents are just unwilling to vaccinate is a misconception that we as providers have. Well, let's talk about the humoral response during illness. Seroconversion to MMR during mild illness was actually observed in a wonderful study where they actually looked at the serologic conversion rates. There are a number of studies, but this one was quite nice in that they looked at 157 sick children, 229 well children, and then compared how effective was this vaccine. In fact, when they looked at the seroconversion rate, they found that the trend generally favored vaccinating during mild illness. Now, this wasn't actually anything that was attributed to vaccinating, but it did show that there was no difference between the two, vaccinating with MMR while mildly sick or while healthy. And it showed that if anything, you're gonna get a slightly better immune response. So now we have to think about us as providers, parental willingness or our concern about their being unwilling to vaccinate if and perhaps when we recommend it. So a survey of the under immunized after urgent care visits was done they did a cross-sectional telephone survey and they looked at 263 families and they found that 75% were willing to vaccinate if the physician or provider in the clinic had only suggested it, that 11% were willing to if they'd strongly encouraged it. And they then looked at what were the strongest predictors of acceptance among those that, that large majority who would accept. And they found that they were simply unaware their child was unimmunized. So this really shows that we can take that first step, take that initiative, and begin the conversation. It also helped if they perceived their child wasn't very sick of the visit, or if they were less concerned about the risk of shots. But there was, in fact, a slight favoring of non-white race when they were accepting vaccinations, and there was no relation to income or education. So now we have to reframe our perspective. We have to think about sick visits as a vaccine opportunity. There was a study comparing the sick visit with or without the shot. Robeson and Pediatrics did a retrospective look at over 1,000 cases, and they followed up through 24 months to see when that shot was missed at that sick visit, if it was ever given again. And they found that in 39% of the cases, it wasn't. So when we think about sick shots, 
Well, they also found that if they deferred, they were overall in that population 50% more likely to become behind. So our conclusions, a missed shot is a missed opportunity. Reflecting back then, let's look at the key points. Vaccines are safe and effective during mild illness. Most parents are willing to accept vaccination. We have to be willing to recommend it. And we have to remind ourselves that to withhold that sick visit shot could very well be to miss that shot. So how do we use CASE? Uh, you're in the clinic. Your child has a common cold and will improve with time. I see she is also due for several vaccinations that are important to complete today. Well, I'll have to come back for those, Nicole. You know, I don't want to give her shots when she's already sick and then make her worse. A lot of parents have a similar concern, and it's hard to see your child ill. I've looked into this and seen the research. Giving an immunization during mild illness, like a cold, is not harmful. And getting her caught up on her immunizations can prevent future illness and infection. I'd recommend completing them all today. Uh, scenario number three. Your child looks great. The nurse will be in for your shots. Thanks, but we're not going to vaccinate our child. We don't believe in injecting chemicals and metals into our baby. So this is a common one that I'll admit uh, made my blood boil a little bit because I tend to be on the more natural, organic side. Um, but looking at the research on this has really helped uh, me put to, help me put things to rest. So let's refresh on vaccine incipients, uh, primarily aluminum, thimerosal, and formaldehyde. First off, aluminum is an adjuvant, meaning this actually helps make the vaccine more effective. So it helps the, enhance the immune response, meaning we need less vaccine and fewer doses. Um, aluminum is readily excreted by the body. It's bound by transferrin and excreted by the kidneys within a couple hours. Um, what's interesting is uh, they've done studies which we've been uh, measured aluminum levels pre and post vaccination and there's no difference. Just to put this in a little more perspective, among um, an entire vaccine schedule from birth to six months for our infants, they could potentially be exposed to about four milligrams of aluminum. During that same time period, a breastfed, purely breastfed infant will be exposed to 10 milligrams of aluminum. So more aluminum in their breast milk than their, what there will be in their entire vaccine schedule. If that, if that infant is fed formula, we, uh, that number increases to 40 milligrams of aluminum. And if given soy formula, which so many parents seem to migrate to, that's 120 milligrams of aluminum. So the amount of aluminum in vaccines is really a drop in the bucket just from feeding them throughout the first six months of life. Thimerosal concerns. Um, this one I seem to encounter a little bit less, fortunately, but uh, again comes up and we'll comment on, on Mr. Trump later as well. Um, Prevents contamination of multi-dose vials. So this was initially uh, used um, uh, to prevent contamination. This does contain ethyl mercury, and the association with methyl mercury is what a lot of parents uh, get worked up about. Um, also, as thimerosal was used in the 1900s, as we saw autism rates begin to rise, um, there was concern for an association. So what's the literature say about this? Again, measuring mercury levels pre and post vaccination, there is no difference. Ethyl mercury, which is found in thimerosal, is not the same as methyl mercury, which is found in fish. Ethyl mercury is rapidly absorbed, meaning it's out of the system within a couple hours post vaccination. Methyl mercury, found in the fish that we eat, will stay in our system much longer. The CDC looked at whether there was an association with this in 2010, and they found no association between infant exposure to thimerosal and subsequently no neuropsychological sequelae. 
Nonetheless, with the heated debate regarding autism and the thimerosal uh, controversy, they elected to voluntarily remove this from the vaccine schedule in 1999. A quick caveat is the only vaccine that contains thimerosal today is multi-dose influenza vials, which most clinics do not use in the United States. And I, am, I would imagine if you're here today, they're not used in your clinic either. Finally, formaldehyde. This is used to detoxify diphtheria and tetanus toxins or to inactivate a virus. What's important to remember about formaldehyde is that this is a naturally occurring substance meaning this is a byproduct of our metabolism, and we are going to have it circulating in our bodies. This is, again, rapidly eliminated within a couple hours, and we ingest much higher quantities of formaldehyde in the air we breathe and the food we eat, and this includes organic produce. So key points to remember. Vaccine incipients all are used in extremely low levels and serve a helpful purpose. There is less aluminum in breast milk and soy formula, while thermarisol um, is a benign preservative, this was voluntarily removed from the market in 1999, even though there was no difference anyway. And formaldehyde is a naturally occurring substance. This is not harmful, and we're exposed to much higher levels in the air we breathe and the food we eat. So let's get back to case. Your child looks great. The nurse will be in for your shots. Ah, uh, thanks, but we aren't going to vaccinate our child. We don't believe in injecting chemicals and metals into our baby. If vaccinations contained any harmful chemicals, any harmful chemicals or metals, I would not want your child having them either. In recent years, there's been a lot of fear surrounding vaccinations. I've reviewed the literature focusing on the safety of vaccines. The truth is, after vaccination, vaccine incipients are intraceable in the blood and actually serve a helpful purpose. In fact, more aluminum can be found in your breast milk and more formaldehyde in organic produce. Vaccinating your child is the best decision you can make for the safety of your child. Thanks for listening. You can find today's featured talk along with videos from our world-class medical conferences at mayotalks.com. We'll be adding more talks each week, so stop by often and send us your feedback. Mayo Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.